Okay, Andy, last week I finished our epic deep dive into the horrible and depraved world of John Edward Robinson. And this week we're doing things a little bit differently because you will be telling the case. What do you have for us? When the whole world is captivated by the disappearance of an eight-month pregnant woman from an agricultural town in California, police struggle to find any hard evidence leading them to a prime suspect. One month later, when a salacious affair is announced in connection with the disappearance, they start to put the pieces together. Ooh, I'm Jesse Bray. And I'm Andy Cassette, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Andy. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about liars, deniers, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching for Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, you know we'd love it if you'd head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about all of the goodies that we have to offer on our different tiers of support. This week, we actually do not have any new patrons because we literally just recorded last night. (laughs) It's true. So I think, in fact, we're going to be using that very small amount of time that we usually use to shout out new patrons. To talk about how this is a very different listening experience today. It is. We are at, what, it's 192? 192. And this is Andy's first full episode. She's, if you guys are on the Patreon, you know she's already excellent because she covers our Patreon cases. But I'm really excited and I have to tell you guys that this is Andy believing that she really wanted to talk about a case that was important and we had gotten so many requests for it and it just wasn't enough to do it on Current Affairs. But also, it's Andy being a very, very, very good friend because I, and honestly, my heart goes out to any of you moms or any parents, moms, dads, whatever, who are experiencing children that have serious illnesses because my son has just been sick for six weeks, basically. I feel like more. More. Just totally run-of-the-mill stuff. It was like ear infection into stomach bug, into influenza A, into sinus infection, into double ear infection. And it was just, it's all like totally normal stuff for like an almost three-year-old to have. But I've just been having a really hard time, guys. And then I was obviously did that two-parter. And I just told Andy, I was like, you know, I think it's why she brought up a couple weeks ago that I had never taken a week off. I said, you know, I might have to soon because I'm just having such a hard time being there for my kids. And for yourself. And for myself right now. And also trying to keep up with everything. And Andy and I really, we don't really argue that much. If we do, it's kind of funny. But she was really pushing me to cover this case. I mean, if you've clicked on this episode, you already know what it is. Yes. And I knew that this was going to be one that was going to kind of do a Betty Broderick on me. Yes, it it would have for sure. (laughs) Yes, it was where I would read so many books and watch every series and do everything. And I was already like stressed to the max. And I just said no. I was like, I know, Andy, you really want to do this, but I cannot take this on right now, especially given that there's so much controversy and there's so much up in the air. And it also inspires 
really big feelings. Like in all of you, we've heard it. We know this. And I think it's just like with the relevance of everything that happened in January with the Innocence Project. With the LA Innocence Project, which I'm sure you're going to be talking about. Yeah. It's impossible to ignore. And I felt like why not alleviate a little bit of stress for (laughs) Jesse? Really try to practice and see if I can do a decent job for you guys. Oh my on, gosh, you're going to be amazing. On updating everyone and refreshing everyone with all of the evidence that exists in the case and just kind of laying everything out there for people to go into the future months with a fresh story and information that will help them follow the news better. I'm very excited about this because other than the stuff that we've looked at for current affairs. Yeah. I have not super duper followed this case. Yeah. Of course, I told Andy to read a book because you know me. You know I love the books. And I did. And she did. So I sent her probably the only Michael Fleeman book I haven't read yet. <laughs> I listened to the book because it was $134 to buy online. What? It yeah. was just not available. Yeah. I'm going to cover the horrifying story of Scott and Lacey Peterson. No matter, I think, what your age or your involvement in the true crime community there is a high chance that you have been exposed to the details of this case at some point. So what is your knowledge of it? (sighs) To be honest, this is one of those cases that even people who are not interested in true crime kind of know about. Because it was everywhere. It was. And I do believe that I have listened to very shallow dives on it. Like maybe like My Favorite Murder or something like where they don't go real, real deep, but they just give you kind of the overview. And I remember that my takeaways from the case was that he seemed extremely guilty. Yes. In my mind and in my heart. Do we always say trust your gut? I did feel that way. Yeah. I actually felt very bad for his mistress. Yeah. We definitely, I know from the Betty Broderick episode that there is a, a, there's a lot of you guys, because usually we come hard at the mistresses, that were like, you gave the mistress a pass in that case. And in that case, she died. So I don't feel bad about it. I do feel like, she had no idea what was going on and there was like a huge media maelstrom. I think that those were my huge takeaways, which is really funny because obviously this happened far before we started the show. And even though I never even considered covering it, which is so strange, and I'm really glad that you are doing it, I think it is a quintessential love murder case. And it probably was one of the Big media cases. There's another one, guys. I mean, I think one of us has to do Jody Arias at some point. And the Ken and Barbie. That's our number one requested case. <laughs> but, you know, after doing John Edward Robinson, I cannot dive into that world for a very long time. No, yeah, yeah. That's going to be like a 666 episode. <laughs> that is hor- Yeah, we're going to have to wait for a while for yeah. that one. I think that those were my big takeaways was that I think also we were all moved by how kind and stunning Lacey was. Yeah. There's some people that are able to, in a photograph even, it's almost like we all thought we knew her just by a photo. And she was sweet and happy and beautiful and loyal and loving. And this is with me knowing very little, very shallow about the case, but just seeing her. And I feel like that's why this is one of those cases that is Almost as big as like a Jean Benet. Yes. Because for the same reason, you're looking at a photograph and you feel connected to the victim in a way that defies reason. But it's just true. Yeah. I think she was someone that everyone could imagine being their friend. Yes. Or wanted to be their friend. And Scott never did himself any favors. Well, he also has like resting douche face. He does. And so, yes, these are the things I knew and not to mention the fact that she was so very pregnant. She was very pregnant. That's all I know about the case. And Andy, I also... 
other than what we've mentioned from major news outlets on current affairs, I cannot tell you guys, and I'm hoping Andy can fill us in on why he has a new case. Yeah, Jesse, it was everywhere. And I'm sure that it is about to be, again, considering the current circumstances with his conviction. If you have not heard, 20 years after Scott Peterson was convicted of murdering his wife, the LA Innocence Project is now working with Peterson to further investigate his claim of actual innocence, which he is still standing firmly by. And although this case has been exhausted in so many different types of mediums, podcasts, documentaries, novels, the nature of the crime, like Jesse said, falls way too in sync with our traditional love murder story to not cover at some point in time. I'm going to follow the incredible format that Jessica has created for our podcast and tell you about the subjects of this case. And then we are going to dissect the evidence, or in this case, lack thereof, perhaps. I will do my best to keep this episode tight yet dense with pertinent information and have you up to date and ready to digest any and all future news that comes our way in the coming months involving the Peterson case. There's a couple of instances like I really, really, really wanted to read Amber Fry's book. Yes. And I didn't get to. So if I get to read that at some point soon or if it becomes pertinent again, I'll definitely maybe do a Patreon episode on it. I hate to tell this story and be really confident in either guilty or innocent because I feel horribly for Scott and his family if he is innocent Mm -hmm. and I'm saying he's guilty and I can't imagine the pain that Lacey's family has felt every day since the day she disappeared on December 24th, 2002 and couldn't imagine painting the picture that he is innocent and that it's someone else out there who's been free this whole time. It hurts someone in each and every way. So the sources that I used today were the A&E documentary, The Murder of Lacey Peterson. And I also, as I mentioned, read the novel Lacey by Michael Fleeman. I listened to two podcasts that I will talk about in the episode as well, and all the details will be in the show notes. And as I mentioned, I did want to read Amber Fry's book, but I did not have time. So we'll see if I can do a Patreon bonus for that if we feel it is relevant. So we're going to start with Lacey. Of course, that's exactly where we should start. So Lacey Denise Rocha was born on May 4th, 1975 in Modesto to Dennis and Sharon Rocha. She joined Brent, her older brother, and was a very, very easy baby. Mother Sharon told the Modesto Bee that Lacey always slept through the night and would wake up with a smile on her face every morning. So her smile, which I think you were kind of describing in the photos, it was infectious. The dimples. Yeah, and it was literally the same exact smile as her mom. Oh. So it was the type of smile that just lights up the whole face. And there's some photos of the two of them when Lacey was a young adult coming of age. And it's almost like a cut and paste smile. The both of them are smiling in a photo and you can like see it's the exact same smile. When watching the documentaries and the interviews of Sharon online, she's very solemn. Like when talking about this whole thing, it has to just be devastating. But when she remembers a memory... Her smile just changes her whole face. It lights it all up. It really does take over the whole face. So she went from an easy baby to a happy and perfect child. Her older brother, Brent, spent early years on their father's dairy farm in Escalon, which is 25 minutes directly north of Modesto, like literally a straight shot north. And it was a 365-acre farm. Wow. I grew up on like a 150-acre farm. And I felt like that was gigantic. Yeah, so I 365 is yeah. big. And there was a ranch-style home that Lacey's grandparents had built. She was definitely influenced 
from living on the farm and developed an early love of plants and agriculture. Loved ones described her as energetic, imaginative, creative, and busy, and she always loved a project. By the time she was two, sadly, the marriage between Sharon and Dennis was over. Kaput. Yeah. You would have never been able to tell that she came from a, what we call, quote-unquote, broken home, but her family referred to it as a blended family. Her mom moved them to Modesto, so Lacey became a city girl during the week, and then she would remain a country girl on the weekend. When she was in her country mode, she didn't necessarily love the farm chores, even though she loved plants and agriculture, but she did love riding horses, and she loved even more so her grandparents' pool at the ranch. So there were these stories about how much of a daredevil she was and how someone dared her to get butt naked and jump in the pool. <laughs> and people were like shocked that little Lacey would do that. But I'm, she would I'm take a good day. I'm feeling her right now. I'm yeah. really feeling her because, guys, I was raised on a farm, but I was also the worst farm girl ever. I liked 4-H, but I was like more on the craft side and the yeah. public presentation side. Than, That's than... kind of how she was too. Yeah. Yeah. So Sharon, her mom, met and married Ron Gransky, who helped raise Lacey as her own. He lovingly named her JJ for Jabberjaws. <laughs> Sound like anyone else we know? Yeah, I know. I was like, I'm feeling like a kinship, but I'm really glad you did this one because I feel like I'd be too emotional. Yeah, she apparently spoke a mile a minute when she wasn't busy smiling. Dennis remarried as well and had another daughter, Amy, when Lacey was six years old. So it's Aww. truly like this really beautiful double life blended family where they all hang out. It's mm -hmm. special. So she attended public schools from elementary all throughout high school. According to Michael Flamen's book, Lacey, she loved Neil Diamond and Van Morrison, and she loved the song Brown-Eyed Girl. Of course. She's, I was about to say that. She's a brown-eyed girl. Yeah. She became a cheerleader in high school and was a strong student, but mostly remembered for her vibrant personality. She made lifelong friends in high school and would have giggly slumber parties with her friends after sneaking a little sip of champagne. Lacey's friends commented to the SF gate that Lacey was unpredictable, driven, and fun. She was silly and real, and although she loved cooking and gardening, that was not all that there was to her. One of her closest friends, Katerina Pike, mentioned that she would have been nauseous over her comparisons to a Betty Crocker type of person. Like, I think when Everything happened and it unfolded in the news. It was like she was watching Martha Stewart that morning and oh she was God, eight months pregnant. Yeah. So it was really interesting to hear what her closest friends felt about her. She was a person of honesty and would definitely speak her mind with anything. Sometimes when they would go to parties and stuff, they kind of were nervous about what she was going to say to someone or if she had just <laughs> met someone. So she really was really direct and awesome. Lacey was 15 when she met the first love of her life, William Kent Gain, who was 17 at the time of meeting. They dated for three years, and she would bring him to visit the farm when she was still living in Modesto. They moved into a two-bedroom house in Morro Bay together during her first year of college. Oh my gosh, I love Morro Bay. Oh, it's beautiful. I was going to ask you if you've ever been. Nathaniel and I found it when we used to drive down from San Francisco to see you in yep. LA. Yeah, it's a great stopping point. So California Polytechnic University in San Luis Obispo is like very close to Morro Bay. When I was listening to all of the stories and listening to the book Lacey the first time, I had to like Google how far it was. And I want to say it was like 15 minutes or something, or yeah. 17 minutes from San Luis Obispo to Morro Bay. So Gain, her boyfriend at the time, remembers them being absolutely crazy about each other. They moved to Morro Bay together during her first year of college at Polytechnic. It's just such a romantic place, too. It's it adorable. Is. It is. They got to have their own little apartment. And he remembers Lacey being more of a tomboy who enjoyed skateboarding. And he said that they would eat pizza and road trip in their VW and just have a great time. And they were actually together on her 19th birthday 
when she got a tattoo, which were some small flowers on her ankle. Oh, look at you, Lacey. Yeah. So friends close to the couple mentioned that he wasn't super kind to Lacey. So Kent made his way to Washington State. And he was shortly after arrested and convicted in 1999 for shooting his girlfriend. What? Oh, man, you had me, like, on Team Kent already. Yeah, so he was interviewed a few times from jail when he was serving his sentence, and he had some things to say about Scott still. He commented that Lacey was fiery and would speak her mind, but compared her to the world's rarest diamond. And he was definitely on the side that he felt that all of the stuff that was circulating about Scott was true. Do you know the circumstances in which he shot his girlfriend? I looked everywhere, and there weren't details about the actual crime. He wasn't in jail for life. It was a certain amount of time, and then he was released. That's insane. It's very crazy that that was her first Wow, I had no first idea. Boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Lacey continued school. They separated and went their own separate ways, did their own things. She was super, super focused on her major, which was ornamental horticulture. So ah. if you don't know, it's a program that focuses on domesticated plant materials used for decorative and recreational applications. Her professor said that she was strong and attentive, saying that she was not a wallflower. See what I did there? <laughs> Professor said, you cannot not know Lacey. It's so funny that there's these types of personalities that can telegraph that way, like even through photos. It's just, I think everyone feels very emotionally yeah, you about hit the nail this, on the head. this yeah. case because you feel like you know her in yeah. some way. In addition to achieving in the classroom, she also worked during her college years, including at the Poly Plant and Floral Shop. She had a true green thumb. So here we are in 1994. Yep. I'm sorry, I was wrong. It's 14 minutes. So if we take a little drive, 14 minutes northeast, directly towards the beautiful Morro Rock, and turn left on the one, you will find yourself at the now out-of-business Pacific Cafe at 571 Embarcadero in Morro Bay. The views from the Cafe of the Bay and the ancient volcanic mound at the end of the Morro Rock Beach are sensational. The rock sits with the Morro Bay State Park, which is the home to lagoons, trails, and a saltwater marsh. So this is where the story of the two of them begins, Scott and Lacey together. Did they meet at school? They met at the Pacific Cafe when Lacey occasionally visited a friend who works there and she came in and she saw her future husband. What was he doing? He was working there. Was he a bartender? He was a waiter. Mm. Like a cafe waiter. Yeah. He had a few jobs like throughout school and stuff. So let's dive in on Mr. Scott. Scott Lee Peterson was born on October 24th, 1972 in San Diego, California. He is the only child of Jackie and Lee Peterson, but they each had three children from previous relationships before meeting, and then they came together and had Scott. He has six older half-siblings. Yes. We'll get into Jackie's children, but yes, Lee has three children from a previous marriage. Okay. Jackie's are a little bit different circumstances. Okay. Jackie had a very difficult childhood. I'm not going to get too deep into it, but her father, John Latham, was 36 when he was murdered outside his tire shop and salvage yard. John was attacked when he left the shop on December 21st, 1945 at 9 p.m., and his skull was smashed by a rusty pipe. It was an ex-employee, 26-year-old Robert Sewell, who was later convicted of the crime and sentenced to life in prison. Jackie was the third of four children on that fateful night, and she was only two and a half years old. So she also had a baby? Yeah. Jackie's Like mother? a new baby. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's so much tangential murder that I didn't know about yeah. with the story. So Jackie's mom could not handle what happened and had a lot of trouble caring for the children and herself. And when Jackie was five, she was sent to a Catholic home where she was raised by nuns. Helen Latham, Jackie's mom, was permitted for weekly visits, but she passed away when Jackie was 18. Ugh. 
When Jackie was still very young, she got pregnant twice and had to place both children up for adoption. Oh. Soon after, she got pregnant again out of wedlock and with her third child, whom she named John, she decided to raise as a single mother and that's when she met Lee. Okay. Yeah. How old was she when she met Lee? Do you know? No, she must have been in her early 20s. Okay, so she had one baby still in her custody. Yeah. She had John. Yeah. And Lee, was he a little bit older? Lee was a little bit older and he had three children from a previous marriage. Okay. Lee had already had three children from a previous marriage, so they Brady bunched it up Mm -hmm. and they had their little golden child together. When Scott turned four, the family bought a home in Scripps Ranch, and the SF Gate describes the area as a friendly suburb ringed by eucalyptus trees in northeast San Diego. Sounds beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. The Petersons loved the all American recreational activities, such as golf, hunting, and fishing. As soon as Scott was old enough to drive the golf cart, he fell deeply in love with the sport. He started playing golf outings at the age of seven. A neighbor mom remembers Scott being stoic, saying her son bounced off the walls, but when Scott was over, he wasn't that way. He was quiet and polite. Friends of the family also recounted Scott's smile as one that also lights up his whole face, Mm, similar to that of Lacey's. They just look like a perfect couple. They really did. Scott always had jobs. Even as young as 10, he was the school crossing guard. He would boast his neon orange vest and assist with getting his fellow students to school safely. I think that could be a nice thing. It also could be a control thing. It could also be an annoying thing. (laughs) Parents of the other children at the school said he was very serious about his responsibility. Some more annoyed than others, trying to swiftly drop off or pick up their kids at school and carry on with their day. (laughs) Like now as a parent doing drop off, I can only imagine. But his parents just adored him, clearly. They thought it was so cute and they would just sit around the corner and like watch him do his job. Oh my goodness. When he was a teen, he worked at the Rancho Santa Fe Country Club gathering gold balls and gassing up carts in exchange for lessons. He attended the University of San Diego High School, which as comparison, the current tuition looks like it's around 20K a year. So it's a bit different from Lacey's public so school. So he, he was in a private school situation. So she's like country girl in it up in Modesto. Grew up on a ranch, essentially. Agricultural town, yeah. And he is in San Diego on golf courses. Lee was always really just setting the bar high for him and expecting the worst. So Scott was constantly motivated by his father to excel, and he continued that through high school. Lee had promised him a Ferrari if he shot hard, and Scott set his mind to it. He practiced, and by the time he was 14, he was actually performing better than his dad. Wow. Lee did get him a car on his 16th birthday, but it was just a used Peugeot. His coaches said that he had great composure and would never let his temper get out of control if he got a bad hit. He was alongside the likes of Phil Mickelson during part of his high school career, which was a great motivator. But his varsity coach essentially said that Scott was just not consistently a good golfer. I mean, I kind of know where the story is going, but I feel like it's just setting him up to be like a frustrated man who never reached his potential. And yeah, like no, totally. Yeah. That's why all of this is important. Yes, it's very, I mean, this is why backstory is important. Totally. Then something kind of weird happened. Scott's teammates were under the impression that Scott had a golf scholarship to ASU. It was at the time one of the top NCAA golfing schools that year. But Lee Peterson had reported that nothing was actually locked in. It was simply a chat with a coach to try out as a walk-in, and there was no guarantee and no confirmed scholarship money. Hmm. 
Soon after, the ASU sports director said that Scott was, quote, never even on the roster. So he left ASU and moved in with his parents who had at the time settled into a nice, cozy little retirement cottage in Morro Bay. He had one more positive golfing year at Cuesta College, but then decided to call it a quits when he missed, like he had just missed qualifying for states and he was like, fuck this. So he returned home for six months. He told his parents that he loved them and they were the greatest and he crashed with them for a little while, but then he moved in with some roommates to figure out life on his own. During this time, he worked a few jobs and in the spring of 1994, he transferred to California Poly in San Luis Obispo. He switched his original plan of majoring in international business to agricultural business and started his new life. This is where I was going to tell you about the quote that Lee said where he was shocked at the change of studies and said instead of him driving a Beamer and drinking martinis, he'll be driving a pickup and drinking beers. Oh, God. As we just talked about, there can be so much pressure that manifests in different ways when you're expected to be a certain thing from your parents. I think whether Lee and Jackie knew it or not, it may have had a very lasting impression on a child or adolescent or a young adult with all of these pressures. And it also seems that Scott also doesn't only like not being in power, but his ability to try to manipulate situations to try to get what he wants, like the ASU situation, Mm -hmm. leads me to believe that he would try it in other aspects of his life and perhaps thinks that the rules don't necessarily apply to the golden child. One of Scott's jobs was at, you guessed it, Abba's Pacific Cafe in Morro Bay. Soon after working there, he strikes up a relationship with a beautiful brunette, but not our beautiful brunette. No, another one, beautiful brunette? Named Lauren. Lauren was the lady in Scott's life before Lacey, and she met Scott when she was 18, and she also worked at Pacific Cafe. She said that their relationship started off remarkable. He was young, ambitious, good-looking, and extremely romantic, which I feel like is so rare for love. Young... Was he love-bombing, though? Yes, absolutely. He would take her to the beach and set up a picnic with champagne and feed her berries. He would make these grand romantic gestures, but that soon tapered off, and He soon became someone who just wanted to stay home, and she was much more of an outgoing person, and she wanted to go out, she wanted to go dancing and do her thing. So they broke up. Lauren Pundit said that the night she broke up with him, he was doing this weird thing where he was pacing back and forth because he was so upset, which I think is really interesting. Mm. It was kind of the first time that throughout the stuff I read about him where he was kind of trying to figure out what to do with his emotions. So he rebounds with another beautiful brunette. Lauren said Scott would bring Lacey into the Pacific Cafe on dates and request to sit in Lauren's section, (gasps) which I think is just cruel, to be honest. Lauren said that she was totally happy for him and not jealous at all, and she said that Lacey was angelic. In December of 2002, just carrying on with her life in San Francisco, Lauren was baffled to see the news. She was completely shocked and terrified, and the FBI came to talk to her. Really? And they told her that she was so lucky that she wasn't lazy, and she apparently she lost sleep over it. They just essentially said, and we'll get into it, but I think that if anything happened with Lauren and she got pregnant and it wasn't what Scott wanted, if he is guilty, then that could have been her. So here we are at the Pacific Cafe in July of 1994, where the bold and beautiful Lacey Rocha scribbles her name onto a piece of paper for Scott Peterson. Being the outspoken gem she was, she handed the piece of paper to a friend and had them pass it along to Scott. Scott thought that his friend was joking and tossed the number. What? Yeah, so there are two different reports about what actually happened here. One is that Scott found out shortly after that his friend wasn't joking with him, 
and he retrieved the number from the trash and called Lacey to ask her out. Did he think she was too good for him? He just was like, whatever. And I don't know, like, if it's like he thought she was too good for him or he thought that his friend was just fucking with him. Like, But he definitely tossed it. Wow. Or he didn't think she was good enough for him? Who knows, really? The second is that Lacey came back in and walked right up to Scott and said, why didn't you call me? I love the latter. I like that pluck. They're going on their first date and playing to Scott's adventurous, outdoorsy, all-American sporting side. He asks her to go on a date deep sea diving. Lacey had a propensity to motion sickness. So she spent the whole trip getting seasick. That was so comforting and caring the whole time that it actually sealed the deal even more that he was the one. Although the foreshadowing of this first date is dark and grim and sets off all sorts of alarm bells to us and I'm sure everyone else who is listening, the disastrous date did begin a courtship between the two absolutely beautiful young adults and with their entire lives ahead of them. Soon Lacey asked Sharon to join her to meet Scott at the Pacific Cafe. They arrived and a handsome, tall young man was waiting outside to lead them to Lacey's favorite table. The table was adorned with two dozen roses, 12 red ones for Lacey, 12 white ones for Sharon, and he was pulling out all the stops. One month later, Lacey met his family. Jackie said that she has never seen anyone make Scott smile so big. Both families were so excited about the pairing, even Brent, Lacey's older brother, who thought Scott looked like the perfect gentleman who would take care of her. They dated, they got engaged, and on August 9th, 1997, they got married. Lacey was 22 and Scott was 24. They wed in Avila Beach, another beautiful coastal town in Central California, at the Sycamore Mineral Springs Resort. It was a small private ceremony on a perfect summer day. Michael Fleeman described that she walked down a grass carpet aisle that was covered in flower petals with a string quartet playing. Of course, Lacey designed all of the arrangements, and there is a spectacular three-tiered wedding cake that sneaks into a few of the photos from that day. She looked absolutely stunning and so, so happy. Scott carried her to their room, and his brother-in-law, Ed Caudillo, recalled, I vividly remember Scott carrying Lacey up to their room at the end of the wedding, and he was shouting and so happy, and she's laughing, and we're all laughing, and he's laughing, and we're so worried that he's going to drop her. (laughs) But Scott had her safe in his arms. They honeymooned to Tahiti. They brought back like little seashells that they actually stored in a glass box that Jackie Peterson had gifted to them. So they had that in their home. I know. It's really cute. So Lacey graduated from Cal Poly in December that year, and she took a job in the Monterey area the following year. So Scott's at Cal Poly finishing up school, and it's around this time, the beginning of 1998, when Scott first flirted with infidelity. According to the SF Gate, one of the two women stated that she had a five-month relationship with Peterson in 1998 while Lacey had moved up to Prunedale, where she started a job at a winery. The woman also reported that Peterson never told her that he was married and only discovered that he was married when she walked in on Scott in bed with Lacey at the house that he shared with his roommates. The affair partner said that there was absolutely no way Lacey knew about his mistress. So what did Lacey think when this woman- She had a meltdown. She caused a huge scene. It was super dramatic. And then there was another woman who attended Cal Poly and dated Scott for two months in 1998. Not sure how considering he was married and also having another affair. And he told her that he was separated from his wife and getting a divorce. And this girl, who was the second affair partner who came forward, said that she only found out that it was a lie when she sat next to Peterson during their graduation ceremony and Lacey came up after and put a lay around his neck and gave him a kiss. 
So shortly after Scott graduated, Lacey moved back down to San Luis Obispo and they opened The Shack, which was a popular sports bar and grill. They ran it for two years and ended up selling it and taking that money and moving to Modesto in 2000, where they bought a ranch home for $177,000. Apparently, Scott's parents had given him 30 k to put down for the down payment for the home. The home was located at 523 Covina Avenue. It was originally built in 1949, and the 1,770-square-foot three-bedroom cottage is in a great neighborhood. But it needed a little bit of work. Okay. They remodeled it and put in a pool and a deck and a garden for Lacey. Scott got a job at Tree Corporation as a fertilizer salesman. I mean, they're very aligned in their interests right now. Totally. Yeah. And Lacey got a position as a substitute teacher. Is he still cheating on her? No, not at this time. I think they're busy fixing up the house and stuff. I did read some questionable not confirmed reports from like anyone in her family, but that they did have some issues with fertility. Apparently, she only had one fallopian tube. It was due to a surgery when she was younger. So it was more difficult than normal people to conceive. But when she did, they were both apparently completely overjoyed. Her due date was February 10th, 2003, which means that she probably got pregnant around May, early June. They <laughs> decorated the nursery and adorned it with a little baby buoy that said, Welcome aboard. Oh. She was elated. And Scott accompanied her to Lama's classes. She was so excited and loving and caring about the new chapter in her life. Everything was falling perfectly into place for the new addition for this perfect couple. Like they had the home, they had the family close by. Everything was great. And honestly, everyone actually seemed envious. Yeah, they would have been so fucking annoying on Instagram. Oh my God, quintessential <laughs> family. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it wasn't abnormal for Scott to travel for work. He's a salesman, just like me. Yeah. So he's a fertilizer salesman? He's a fertilizer salesman in an agricultural town. So he's selling town. shit. He is a shit seller. <laughs> Four months prior to when Lacey was due to give birth to their first child, Scott found himself in Anaheim at a fertilizer conference. Oh, you know, that's the birthplace of every good love story. And what do you think that he was talking about at the fertilizer conference? What do you think there is to talk about at the fertilizer conference? Was he talking about how overjoyed he was about to be to be a first-time father? He was talking with someone whom he had just met about sexual positions and what his favorite were. Okay. A former employee of Peterson, Eric Olson, was there to see it all. And he felt that the conversations that were being had there were more than inappropriate. Olson and Peterson had traveled to the happiest place in the world in October of 2002 to set up a booth during the event. They met up with Olson's friend, David Fernandez, who invited his friend, Sean Sibley. The four went to dinner and, well, Sibley and Peterson really hit it off. Olson and Fernandez said that the conversation went from talking shit sales to talking sexy time real quick. Oh, no. Scott was kind of testing Sean to see how far he could push her to eventually talking into their favorite sexual positions. Apparently, he also told her that he wanted to write on his business cards that you hand out, like, at the trade show. He wanted to write HB on it. And she was like, what does HB mean? And he's like, horny bastard. What? Olson and Fernandez left the dinner probably feeling like they wanted to take a shower. But after, Scott mentioned to Sean that he liked intelligent women. And he also liked thin women. <gasps> I know I don't need to mention that Scott's wife is currently six months pregnant. And Sean had no idea that he was married. So he's not wearing the ring. He's not wearing the ring. His homies left. They were very uncomfortable. And they also are under Scott at his career. So they can't. They can't blow him in. 
Yeah. So he essentially gets all on Sean's good side. And Sean is like, oh my God, I actually have someone who would be perfect for you. My girlfriend, Amber, lives up in Fresno. She's beautiful. She's a masseuse. I think that you guys would be perfect together. The only problem is that Scott wasn't the single Scott that Sean thought he was. But it would take about another month for her to figure it out. Wow. So Amber. Amber Dawn Fry was born on February 10th, 1975. She was born in Los Angeles, California. And she is the daughter of Rob, who was a general contractor, and Brenda, who was a hospital supervisor. Amber attended high school and city college in Fresno and then worked at the Learning Tree, which was a childcare center. In 1997, she met a married man, Josh Hart, at a fitness club. They lived together for four months, but Hart's wife, Michelle, was pregnant with the couple's son. Once the baby was born, Josh and Michelle reconciled, and shortly after, in 1998, there were some accusations that Josh was abusive to Amber, and so she filed a formal misdemeanor complaint against him after he had reconciled with his wife. In 2000, Amber completes 540 hours of training to become a massage therapist. She becomes pregnant on February 20th, 2001, and Ayana Fry is born. A man by the name of Anthony Flores is required to pay child support for Ayana, but in 2005, a DNA test shows that he is actually not the father of the child, but rather a local bar owner. Girl has bad luck with dudes. And here comes her friend Sean, who thinks that it would just be the best idea to hook her up with this sexy, motivated businessman that she just met at the conference. On November 20th, 2002, Peterson showed up to the Elephant Bar in Fresno with no ring on his finger. And Amber right away asks him if she can trust him with her heart because she's had a string of bad So she's trying to like be honest. She's trying to be straightforward. Exactly. So they are super flirty. They left the bar to go to the restaurant. And when they walked out to the parking lot, Scott asked if she would mind if they could run to the hotel that he's staying at because he had been in the car all day driving and he just wanted to shower and change because he had been wearing the same suit and he felt a little like stale. So Amber didn't mind and they got in his Ford truck and drove to the Radisson in downtown Fresno. No, I do not like where this is going. So Scott's truck was full of stuff. It was so apparent that he made a comment that he practically lives out of his truck because he's a salesman. They went up to the room and it was on the top floor and he put his luggage, which was just a brown duffel, on the bed and he magically pulls out a bottle of champagne. What? So he showered, got dressed, he pulls out a box of strawberries, which is even a weirder. Box of strawberries? <laughs> a box? He loves feeding berries to people. So next they went to this fancy sushi dinner. They like walked in and they sat at a table and then he went up to the owner or the maitre d' and he was like, like whispering to him. And then he was like, I got us a private room. What? Yeah. So I read some reports where they were like, they said that he was waiting to see if she was hot before going into the private room. So they went into their little private room. They talked. They drank. They shared secrets with each other. he's totally single. Oh, no. He's totally single. He made up stories about himself saying that he often travels the world. And he's like charming. Amber said that they were already relatively intoxicated by the time they stumbled over to a karaoke bar. And so they got to the karaoke bar and she was like, oh, we're like totally fine. We're not going to drink. And he ordered them two gin drinks. Well, this is just like if you really are single. Yeah. This just seems like a Because you're having fun and you just want it to keep going. And you're just like, we're vibing and we're going on to the next thing. It's hard to listen to knowing what we know. Of course. And how pregnant is Lacey at this point? It's the end of November, so her due date's in like three months. So she's getting into her third trimester. A month earlier, at the end of October, 
she was walking in the park and she went and walked the dog in the morning, Lacey, and she was so pregnant that she got sick and vomited in the park and almost passed out. And the doctor said that she needed to either like stop walking the dog or she needed to like only take walks at the end of the day when she was already hydrated enough. That's how pregnant she is. This is premeditated affair. He had the champagne. He had the whole plan. Hotel. So they are canoodling at the karaoke bar. They share a passionate kiss. They go back to the hotel and they have sex. You also have to remember, Jesse, that she has a young kid at this point in time. We've talked recently about single moms and like how hard it is to date and how hard it is to find someone who like is okay with you having a kid. Oh, and you know he was saying all the right things. Yes, of course. Of course. On their second date, a couple of weeks later, they went hiking and Scott carried her 22-month-old daughter, Ayana. And later that day, he gave her, the little girl, a children's book. So Scott, that night, they're playing house. And he makes Amber seafood lasagna, which actually sounds pretty disgusting, to be honest. (laughs) But while they were dining, he popped a bottle of wine and he, like, took the cork. And they had sex. And then after, they, he was like, just so you know, there's going to be so many more corks on our journey and so many more bottles to share together. So Thanksgiving comes and goes. And Scott told Amber that he had gone fishing in Alaska with his dad. But he wasn't. He was with his wife, who was in her third trimester in Modesto, putting final touches on their nursery and hanging out with his in-laws. And they had named the baby. Oh, yeah. Connor. Yep. So this is the point of the story where we are starting to get into conflicting sides, mostly because of how blown out of proportion everything was by the media. So the media weighed heavily on the side that he was so, 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 so guilty, okay? This case gave the Bush re-election a run for its money. There's an... uh, part of the Larry King live show where he's talking about how they have to do split screen because he didn't want to not see the Scott Peterson trial and the election. Why do you think this is because people just felt like they knew and loved Lacey so much? Yeah, I think the pregnancy thing was really hard. And it was also during the holidays, which we'll get into. So it was just like (sighs) the perfect recipe. I always take, as we always do when you talk about cases, I know we've brought this up a few times, but This part of the story, I'm doing it in kind of a chronological order, and I think it's important to talk about this testimony from a convicted felon. Okay. And you know we always take these things with a grain of salt, but I do think it's worth noting, and it belongs in this place in the timeline, which is after Thanksgiving. Okay. I found this on multiple news sources, but it just seems absolutely wild. So apparently after Thanksgiving on November 29th, Scott went back up to Fresno to visit Amber. And he stopped at a strip club called City Lights. Oh, this guy's just a peach. And he saw... This guy, Carol, and he was buying a drink. His last name's Carol. And he was, when he was buying a drink, he saw his prison identification card in his wallet. And Carol was apparently a convicted forger, thief, and parole violator. And Scott asked if they could chat. Carol allegedly introduced Scott to two Nazi lowriders, which is a neo-Nazi white supremacist organized crime syndicate. And they went to have a chat together about a potential scheme in a Fresno hotel room. According to Carol, Peterson initially wanted someone to steal his wife's car as part of an insurance scam. But the talk turned into kidnapping, at which point Carol left the room because he didn't want to hear it. Scott continues. He leaves the bar. He leaves his new friends in the hotel room, just kind of chatting to see like what that looks like. And he goes his merry way over to Amber's home and spends some quality time with her and her daughter from December 1st to 4th. so fucked up. So on December 3rd, Amber gives Peterson a key to her home. So she just met him on November 20th. And on December 3rd, she gave him a key to her home along with her car seat and asked him to pick up Ayana at daycare. He said he would be honored. 
and the three went out to buy a Christmas tree together. While they were playing family, Peterson told her that he was never, ever close to having children with anyone. (gasps) He said that he also lost his wife and that it would be his first Christmas alone. He said he has never been close to marriage. I am almost speechless with anger right now. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Take it from someone who has been using the platform for years. Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without any of the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, Shopify has you covered. I think everyone gets really overwhelmed with starting a business, even if they have a brilliant idea. And Shopify is for you. If you are concerned about shipping, organizing orders, keeping track of inventory, figuring out how you're going to market your business, Shopify has all of that built into the system already with even out any of the thousands of added apps that they have to offer. And now you have brought all those learnings to the Love Murder site and it's so much better for it. But honestly, guys, this is so easy that I could have figured it out. (laughs) Did you also know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is truly a global force powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. Andy, one of my New Year's resolutions this year was to be moving on from my cheap drugstore razor era and getting into the premium razor era that my body truly deserves. You have to be talking about Athena Club. Obviously. This razor is truly worth the hype. If you haven't tried it, you really need to give it a shot. So step up your shaving game now with Athena Club's award-winning razor kit. It's seriously the best on the market, and here's why. Price. First of all, the Athena Club razor kit is an absolute steal at just $10. But don't let the price fool you. This razor packs a serious punch. It comes with a beautifully made ergonomic handle and two super sharp razor heads that deliver an incredibly smooth shave every time. Gotta mention the magnetic hook. You also get a game-changing magnetic hook in the razor kit for easy storage. This means no more sitting your razor on the edge of their tub, no more goopy blades, no more razor falling down to your shower floor in the middle of the night or the middle of your relaxing shower. And don't forget the quality of the shave. Athena Club's razor glides effortlessly thanks to those five precision engineered blades. The blades are perfectly spaced out to let hair pass through with each stroke, and you'll experience less irritation, which is always a win in my book. I also don't think I've ever had a multitasking razor, but this one moisturizes while you shave with an avocado oil and hyaluronic acid serum. Plus, it has built-in skin guards to help prevent razor burn. Honestly, the blade on my old razor used to get all goopy after just a few uses, but I love the water-activated serum on Athena Club's razors. There's just enough of it to soothe while shaving, but never that it gets gross and gunky on the blade. If you still think that all razors are created equal and haven't made the switch, you need to try Athena Club's razor kit. It's the best deal you'll get on a premium razor and will keep you feeling confident in your own skin all year long. 
Ready to upgrade your shaving experience? Switch to the best razor on the market and show your skin you care with Athena Club. Head on over to athenaclub.com to try their award-winning razor and body products and get 20% off your purchase with code LOVEMURDER at checkout. You can also find Athena Club razors at your local Target stores. Trust me, you will not look back. Happy shaving. On December 6th, Sean, the happiest place in the world conference sex chat girl, <laughs> while working with a few colleagues, learns that Scott is indeed married. So she found out through people he worked with? Yes. According to her testimony, she quote unquote freaked and she called him crying and told him that he needs to come clear to Amber. They have like a phone tag, but like with voicemail. When they finally talk, he begs her to just stand by and allow him to tell Amber. So while she's trying to figure all this out, she calls Eric Olson. Eric Olson's like, I don't want to get involved with this. So she buys the online investigative kit. She searches Sacramento. Nothing comes up. She's about to search Modesto. She's like, all right, well, I'm going to pay some more money and search Modesto. And he calls her back and he's like, listen, I'm so glad I got to talk to you. I want to tell Amber myself, but I was married. So if you search, it's going to show that I was married. Was? Yes. But I Past tense? He said, I had been married, but I lost my wife. And so Sean's like, oh, shit. She's like, oh, no. I feel kind of bad. So he says, I need to be the one to tell Amber. So can you please just let me tell her? She's like, you need to tell her soon. If you don't tell her by this date, I'm going to tell her. He's feeling the pressure. So that's on December 6th when the Sean conversation happens. December 7th to 8th, CNN and several other news outlets once the trial comes out, report that Peterson visited a plethora of sites about the San Francisco Bay, looking at maps, fishing reports, and U.S. Geological Survey charts of water currents. The chart was clickable, so it allowed the searcher to zoom in, and Scott was researching an area of the bay called Brooks Island. That's where he zoomed in deeper. And then after he searched for a boat for sale and areas that he could take his boat out on. December 9th, Scott, who was not an avid fisher, paid cash for a small fishing boat, $1,400. He bought the boat from a Bruce Peterson, no relation. The boat included two life jackets, two seat cushions, one oar, one six-gallon gas tank, a battery, a fish finder, a small trolling motor, a boat cover, and two spare tires. Bruce did not sell Scott anchors. On December 9th, Scott also told Amber that he, quote, lost his wife and that it would be his first Christmas without her. December 14th are the Christmas parties. I don't know if there is anything more stomach-churning than the juxtaposition of the Christmas celebrations that Lacey and Scott had this year. This is supposed to be their last Christmas together with just the two of them before they welcome their baby, which, as you and I know, is a very special time. But if you look at these photos from that night from December 14th, 2002, one photo is of Lacey at a Christmas party hosted by Terry Western and Stacey Boyers. And she spent most of the night sitting in this wicker chair that she's photographed in, and she is very pregnant. She was wearing this dark satin set. It was like a tank and a little capri. And she looks very happy, but she's alone. Next to it, you have Scott and Amber, who were at the World Sports Bar in Fresno. In this photo, Amber is looking at Scott, and she's wearing a bright red satin little strapless dress with her blonde hair up in a clip. And Scott is like super jolly, but he's not even looking at the camera and he's not even looking at Amber. He's like looking away and he has a Santa hat on his head. And he honestly looks like he does not have a care in the world. Gazing straight ahead and she has her head tilted towards him and he is just like looking past her. The fact that those photos happened on the same night is do you, wild. Do you think she ever knew? Scott tells 
in interviews, he tells reporters that Lacey knew and mm-hmm. that she wasn't happy about it, but it was something that they were going to work through together. Whereas other people say that there is absolutely no way that Lacey would have dealt with any of that. And that if Lacey found out, she would have called her family. She would have called her friends. I mean, 100%. think about what I was saying at the beginning with her, like telling people how she feels and she speaks her mind. Amber testified that her and Scott spoke about a lot of different things that evening together. But most significantly, they spoke about children. Amber stated that she was already a single mom and definitely wanted more kids. She Ugh. worked before she was a masseuse, she worked in childcare. I know. And Scott told her that he didn't want any children. He actually thought about getting a vasectomy already. And she was like, You are so young to be thinking about that. So how does she think that this guy is going to be like a good dad for her kid? Well, I mean, he essentially told her like, I don't want a kid, but your kid is perfect. Me being stepping in, like I'd so much rather step in and be a dad to your kid. And this was honestly the last night that they ever saw each other (gasps) until they saw each other in the courtroom. So we're at December 20th. So it's six days after December 20th. Yep. Scott purchases some fishing equipment, and he also purchases a two-day license at the Big Five store in Modesto. The license that he purchased clearly states that December 23rd is the date that you can start using it. So it's a two-day ticket, so he can use it on December 23rd and December 24th, okay? This was also the date that he decided to DIY a cement acre. Okay, this is looking really bad for him. Yeah, so he bought a 90-pound bag of cement and made what the cops only found was one anchor later. Scott and Amber are still communicating every day from the 14th. It seems like they spoke, if not one, then multiple times a day. Uh. Like, it's like that early love romance, want to talk to you all the time, listen to you breathe on the phone, blah, blah, blah. December 23rd, obviously the day before Christmas Eve, Lacey and Scott both had quite a few errands to get everything ready for their Christmas celebration. At 8.30 in the morning, their housekeeper, Margarita Nava, came to clean, and she cleaned a lot. So she used Clorox, Pine Sol, she mopped. She did the whole house. She is contacted by the police later to talk about what she remembers from the home. And she clearly remembers that she left around 2.30 p.m. So she did some significant cleaning, six hours. So Lacey started her day at Trader Joe's where she picked up some stuffed salmon filet, shrimp, heavy cream, and a bottle of Grand Marnier. And then she went to go see an esthetician at a spa who said she was wearing black pants and a white long sleeve shirt. And she mentioned that Lacey seemed really tired. So imagine like I told you in October, she had had that kind of fainting situation. So they have one dog. They have one dog. Her name's Mackenzie. Is she working now? Lacey is not working anymore. She's getting ready for the baby. And basically her husband's never around. Scott is always on business trips. And so she's very tired and she waits for Scott to come home after she goes to the esthetician. And then in the evening, her and Scott go to visit Lacey's half-sister, Amy her younger Mm -hmm. sister, Amy Rocha, at the salon that Amy worked at so Scott could get a haircut. So they were both at the salon. They were just all making small talk, talking about the next day and plans for Christmas Eve. And Amy mentioned that she had a fruit basket at Vela Farms that she had ordered for her grandfather for Christmas Eve. And Scott was like, oh, well, I'm going golfing the next day nearby. So I'll pick it up on my way back to the house and we can just bring it to the Christmas Eve celebration. Amy remembered that Lacey was wearing a black top with cream pants. So she had changed after she went to the esthetician. The top was cream colored and it had either polka dots or flowers on it. And then she was wearing like a cream colored scarf. And then she had also mentioned that Lacey seemed very tired. She also had gone to prenatal yoga between the 20th and 23rd. And her prenatal yoga instructor said that she seemed excessively tired. Had to like help her walk out to her car. They got home and she called her mom at 8.30 p.m. 
they chatted and they talked about the following evening and talked about dinner. And Scott was communicating with Amber as well, telling her that he was on his way to meet his family in Kennebunkport. According to Scott, when he told the cops, when they asked, what were you and Lacey doing the night of the 23rd, he said they were just relaxing in bed watching TV. So they fall asleep. And on December 24th, this is the day that Lacey Peterson is reported missing. Amber did not hear from Scott this day. We only know Scott's story because he's the only survivor from this situation. What we do also know is that there are random witnesses who were also not reliable because they were potentially burglars across the street who saw Scott in the middle of the night between the 23rd and the 24th doing quote-unquote shady things at his home and near the marina. These aren't official testimonies in the trial, so I didn't want to elaborate on them too much, but it's placed here in the story, and apparently there are witnesses who saw Lacey on the morning of the 24th. There are also witnesses who saw Scott doing shady stuff at night from the 23rd to 24th. So we don't know we when do she not disappeared. No. According to Scott, Lacey woke up at 7 a.m., and put Scott's blue pajama pants in the hamper, which the cops found there. Then she showered. Scott woke up around 8, and Lacey was already showered. Lacey then watched Martha Stewart around 9.48 and asked Scott to bring the mop bucket inside and to fill it for her so that she could clean and mop the kitchen. What? Were they having people over? They were, but Margarita was just there the day before, and she's tired. Yeah. Is she really going to mop? He said that he... Watched her practice curling her hair the way that Amy had showed her at the salon the next day. She wanted to curl her hair and flip it out in a way. And she had pulled like a bench over to the bathroom so that she could sit and do it because she was tired. And Scott carried on with his day. Seems like a very productive morning for a very tired pregnant woman, if you ask me. While they're both still home. On Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve in the morning, someone logged on to their home computer. And at 8.42, visited some websites that populated... You know how sometimes when you're on a website and advertisements pop up? Yes. So that happened, and it advertised a red gap scarf and sunflower deck umbrellas. Then someone logged into Scott's email and wrote an email about a golf bag. So someone was on the computer, and it cannot be proven whether it was Scott or Lacey. People who are Scott innocent advocates definitely say that it was Lacey shopping. People who think that Scott is guilty think that it was Scott and that it was just Yahoo populating search shopping advertisements. Mm -hmm. Someone was on the computer and Scott wrote an email from his email address at 8.45. So Scott said that he left around 9.30 a.m. He was going golfing alone. He was like an outdoorsy person who liked doing things on his own. On Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve with an eight-month pregnant wife. Before he did that, he was loading these three huge umbrellas into the back of his truck from 9.20 to 9.40, and then he was going to go drop them off at the warehouse. So he heads to the warehouse at 9.50. He makes a call from his cell phone at 10.08, which pinged him close to his home. So he actually didn't leave until around 10.08. And Scott goes to the fertilizer warehouse from like 10 to 11. Then he goes to, instead of golfing, because it's kind of chilly outside, he decides to go fishing instead. Mm. So he gets his boat, and then he leaves around 11.15 to make the 97-minute drive to the Berkeley Marina. So he's alone on Christmas Eve, and he has decided that he's just going to go fishing for no reason. He's going to go on his spontaneous fishing trip with his two-day ticket that was only valid from the 23rd to the 24th with his truck and boat and the truck that had the umbrellas in it that he was going to drop off the warehouse that he didn't. 
at 12.54, Scott gets a boat ticket at the Berkeley Marina to load his boat in, and he goes fishing. Said that he was in the water for 90 minutes, and there are witnesses who saw him there, including a man named Uri Feria, who saw Scott launching his boat into the water. I do think it's very weird that he was taking the umbrellas to the warehouse to drop them off, and then he never dropped them off, but whatever. So meanwhile, back at home at 10.18, approximately, neighbors would see their dog Mackenzie wandering around with her leash on. Some people remember not seeing Lacey on the walk with the dog. Other people remember seeing Lacey on the walk with the dog. Other people remember seeing sketchy figures in East Loma Park, which is the park just up the street from their house. Some other neighbors remember seeing the shades drawn at the Peterson home, which was not normal. Someone else heard screams in the neighborhood, yelling amongst people. There was just all of these crazy reports about things that happened well, during this time. like blew up. So everyone's like, yeah. everything they thought they heard, yeah. they needed to report. So Scott's fishing. Lacey's nowhere to be seen. So she's at home. She's getting ready for everything. According to Scott, this is what's happening. She's planning the dinner. And at 2.15, Scott calls Lacey and leaves a voicemail that's been heard hundreds to thousands of times by anyone who knows about this case. And he says, hey, beautiful. I just left a message at home. Uh, it's 2.15. I'm leaving Berkeley. I won't be able to go to Vela Farms to get that basket for Papa. I was hoping that you would get this message and go on out there. I'll see you in a bit, sweetie. Love you. Bye. At 3.25, Scott gets gas. At 3.52, he calls Lacey again but does not leave a voicemail. So he is coming back to the home with his ticket from the marina. No fish. He didn't get any fish. A full tank of gas but no receipt from the gas station. And... One voicemail, one not voicemail. So he arrives home at 4.30, 4.45, and Scott says he arrived home and Lacey's- Were they supposed to have people over that night or the next day? So their table was set for dinner so at their house. So they were Christmas Eve dinner? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So her car was there. She was gone. Scott found the dog with the leash in the backyard that a neighbor had put <sighs> in the backyard safely. Lacey's purse and keys were still home. Her shoes that she wears to walk were still home. He puts his clothes in the washer because they're fishy. He took a shower and called Sharon to ask if Lacey was with her. Apparently, when Scott called Sharon at 517, he said that Lacey was quote-unquote missing, which immediately struck Sharon as weird. Scott goes to the neighbor's houses to check. He knocks on the door and says, is Lacey here? Is Lacey here? Ron Gransky, Lacey's stepdad, calls the police at 547. And Sergeant Dewerfelt, Modesto PD, received the call to respond to East La Loma Park at 5.58, and police are at the house at 6 p.m. So Scott and Sharon, Lacey's mom, met at the park to try to start looking for Lacey, and police arrive shortly after. Scott comes back and calls 911 after he goes to all of his neighbors and doesn't have any success. Around 6.20, police search the Covina home with Scott's permission. Local hospitals are called, they exhaust the park, and they go back home where the police start searching. When the Modesto police detectives John Bueller and Alan Burkini arrived to the home of Scott Peterson, they found Lacey's keys, wallet, and sunglasses in her purse in the closet. The dining room table was set for family dinner the following night, and one of the detectives claimed that there was a phone book wide open on the counter, open to defense lawyers. Scott was completely calm, and he was so calm that when he was drinking coffee, he was like holding the coffee cup still, like it wasn't shaking at all. When picturing Scott in my head, it's hard not to imagine Ben Affleck. Only walking around the empty home in David Fincher's Gone Girl. I'm sure all of you know, but if you don't, it's a film adaptation of The Captivating Page Turner by Gillian Flynn. Flynn is a self-described true crime addict. She told Entertainment Weekly that she didn't base her story that came out 10 years after the Peterson case 
on a particular case and it's just a coincidence that her characters and the Petersons are both good-looking couples. I have to say some of the similarities, though, of her character Nick make it hard to ignore. He has such a Scott Peterson vibe in the movie. Although it's not inspired by Scott exclusively, the idea that we are all consumers of tragedy now and that we cast heroes and our villains within these stories and we become so invested in them, Scott Peterson was definitely one of those cases. So here we are. Helicopters are dispatched in the evening. Detectives come back and conduct a thorough search of the home. Before midnight, they also go to the fertilizer warehouse to take photos of the boat. And they go back to the home and take comprehensive photos of the whole home. Around midnight, they bring Scott to the police station where he voluntarily had a conversation with Burkini. And Scott consented to gunshot residue tests. But he did ask if the exhaust from the outboard motor could register as positive. Scott also clearly denied having any marriage issues or an affair and also verbally consented to a lie detector, even though they didn't have one there readily available. Mm -hmm. So Modesto, in general, was often referred to as a sleepy town, but in all reality, it did have its fair share of crime. Modesto is the largest city in San Islas County, and it was named after the Spanish word for modest. (laughs) However, both violent and property crime rate in Modesto is twice the overall national crime rate. Wow, really? Yeah. This means that people who live in Modesto are far more likely to become victims of violence. According to a local Reddit user, they mentioned that there's a lot of meth in certain areas, along with not super safe public transport and a lot of nonviolent crimes. They offset that with saying that there are really a lot of good people who live there, and they have been trying to correct all these issues for a long time. According to Michael Fleeman, Modesto was no stranger to missing person cases. 1,400 missing persons reports had come to the Modesto Police Department in 2002. All but a dozen were resolved within hours. As they always saw, the first 48 hours are the most important when it comes to cases like these. Of the dozens that were unresolved, eight of those were clear runaways. Credit card transactions located some of them who were trying to take off, and only two cases were left open. One was a homeless woman, and the other was Lacey. Wow. Yep. One of the most dangerous places, as we all know, for a woman to be is at home with the man she loves. According to a U.S. Department of Justice report cited by Michael Fleeman, each year, eight out of 1,000 women could be expected to be raped, murdered, robbed, or assaulted by a current former partner or husband in what the crime researchers call intimates. One third of all women victims were killed by an intimate from 1976 to 1996, and being pregnant increases the risk a 2001 study found to be the biggest cause of death among pregnant women was homicide. In 2002, a CDC report showed that 17,593 women were killed in the United States of assault by homicide. It falls at number 14 out of 15 for the leading causes of death. Most health problems that have been like fixed by medical purposes, you know, like Mm -hmm. most of the risks, and those numbers that we are saving are murdered now. Lacey missing happened at the perfect moment when there was no other news going on. Christmas Eve and Christmas. Traditionally, there is always a lull over the holidays with news. Businesses run on skeleton staffs and people are off work. All of a sudden, there's an eight-month pregnant woman missing on Christmas Eve. And I was just about to say the irony of the situation happening on Christmas Eve did not fall on deaf ears. I found multiple documents that compared her to Virgin Mary. (sighs) There were a lot of new anchor excitements thinking this is another OJ. This is going to be huge. We're going to get so many new audience members. And everyone was so hyped over it. They were just anxious to sell as many pieces, news Mm. stories, magazines, all about this case. So the search continued through the early hours of Christmas, mostly at the park, and then expanded. They brought in canine units, police mounted on horseback, bicycles. Christmas Day, the friends set up a volunteer center at the Cabina home, which moved to the Red Lion Inn on the 26th. 
A $25,000 reward was originally offered and blue and yellow ribbons were handed out to help people recognize other people looking for Lacey. Posters of Lacey and a website was put up to help with the search. More than 1,500 people volunteered their time and efforts to help look for Lacey over the holiday. During this 2002 Christmas holiday when the town is historically relatively sleepy with the exception of an annual light-up bike ride in town, there were 11 or so witnesses who claimed to remember seeing Lacey walk Mackenzie the morning of Christmas Eve. They said that they saw a pregnant woman struggling with a dog and they said that she was having a hard time and some of them even said that they saw her accompanied by a strange man with long hair. Okay. In the podcast, one of the three podcasts that I listened to, this one was the Rabia and Ellen Solve the Case. Hosts Rabia Chowdhury and Ellen Marsh talk about all the independent witnesses who came forward but were not called to testify at trial. I'd like to disclaim this, that Rabia and Ellen Solve the Case is they vehemently feel that Scott is innocent. Really? Yes. Their episode is really interesting and it calls out all of the points that point to his innocence. So there's four really strong witnesses that they talk about. So the first is Homer Maldonado, who he didn't know Lacey, but when he was getting gas, he saw a pregnant woman walking a dog. And he remembered noticing that she wasn't wearing a sweater and it was only 40 degrees. And he was like, oh my gosh, that woman should have a sweater or a jacket on. The second is Martha Aguilar, who knew Lacey and said that she saw Lacey walk by on what turned out to be the same street as another witness, Jean Predrioli, reported seeing Lacey on Christmas Eve morning. Before the dog was running around by himself. So the dog was running around by herself at like 10.18. So it would have had to be before then. So it was like after Lacey watched Martha Stewart, but before the dog was by itself at 10.18. So it's like a 20-minute window. Okay, and when, window. when did Scott say he was with her? Scott said that he left around 9.20, but his phone pinged close to the home at 10.08. So mm. he was somewhere close to the home at 10.08 still. Some people are saying they just see her with a dog. Some people are saying with a random long-haired man. That's our next person. Tom and Elizabeth Harshman reported that they were driving between 2 and 4 p.m. on Christmas Eve, and they saw a white van with a stripe. They said that they spotted a heavily pregnant woman with short, dark brown hair squatting and urinating outside what? the van while a scruffy-looking guy stood over her. They said that they saw an arm reach out of the van and pull the woman who looked scared in the van. Why didn't they call the police at that time? They reported this tip to the volunteer center once. Only after yes. Lacey was reported missing. Yeah. The thing is, most of these people, with the exception of someone who knew Lacey, had seen someone who looked like they could have been Lacey. It wasn't necessarily Lacey. We also have to remember that all of these people, you know how time kind of slows down during the holidays? Yes. And these people thought that they saw her on the 24th, but it could have been another time. If it was another time, Scott had from 8.30 p.m. on the 23rd until 5 on the 24th to kill her and get rid of her, yes. which is a lot of time. They're searching for her, okay? No avail. We're at Boxing Day now. So the 26th. The volunteer center is set up at the Red Lion Inn. There's cops and people volunteering to keep looking for her, but we're at the 48-hour mark. Yes. So Lacey's stepdad, Ron, goes up to Scott and he says, did you have an affair? Your fishing trip, I gotta tell ya, it seems really sus. And Ron remembers he had interviewed with Greta Van Cistern and had told her the story. And he said, I talked to Scott two days after Lacey was missing. And I asked him, I said, you know, if you had an affair and you were seeing anyone, I think it's time to say something because I know the police are going to bug you about the fishing story. 
And he said, nope, no problem. I haven't. And so I let it drop. So Lacey's biological father also concluded that it was Scott on the 26th as well. He was very sus about him. And he said that something was not right and felt that there was zero warmth or concern or emotion from him, which tracks for his history and how he was raised. But it just doesn't seem like this is how you would be if you were freaking out trying to find your partner. So another thing that happened, potentially on the 26th, but we're not really sure, was that the neighbor, the Medinas, returned home from Los Angeles and found that their home had been burglarized. When they arrived home, the Kavina home of the Petersons looked like a complete crime scene. There was an active warrant to search the Peterson home again, and there were cop cars everywhere, and police and news cameras lined the street. They reported the robbery to the Modesto PD, and they said that there were a bunch of guns stolen, $3,000 in cash, $50,000 in jewelry, and designer bags. And they had to have happened sometime between the 24th and the 26th because they had gone down to Los Angeles for vacation. It likely happened the 24th because the 25th and 26th, there would have been cops everywhere. Yes. We have to believe that it happened on the 24th. And there also was a witness who was a neighbor who saw suspicious people on the lawn around 11 a.m. on Christmas Eve morning. Okay. They didn't put it together until the Medinas got home. And then they were like, oh, that was weird what I saw. You know how sometimes you see things and you're like, oh, that's kind of weird. But then you don't piece it together. Yeah, because it doesn't have any context at or all. importance yeah. at that point. So during the search of the Petersons' home during this time when they have the extended warrant, the MPD scoured the home and they took two personal computers, two patio umbrellas, and both of their cars. The canine units were called and they started looking for Lacey. And a lot of the canine dogs were ruled ineffective, which apparently is the case for a lot of scent dogs. Apparently, some people think it's just hocus pocus. I think it just depends on obviously the trainers and the dog's performance. So the 27th, they continued to search the home and they went to the storage unit and they also took the boat. The police refused to say what they were looking for. So this is day three now through the holidays. And they also were very gatekeepy about what they had found as well. Was Scott in contact with Amber at this point? So Scott's in contact with Amber through the whole time. And he The only time he wasn't was on the 24th. He never lets her know. No. What's going on? Uh Uh-uh. How does he not think this is going to be national news? I don't know. Not even like statewide news. She doesn't live that far away. I know. She's pretty close. So they tracked down the Pearson who sold the boat to Scott. Mm -hmm. And they were like, hey, here's the boat. We need to talk to you about this. And so Bruce noted that there was one life vest missing along with one of the auxiliary wheels that is used for launching missing. And he also noticed that there was a weird powdery residue in the bottom of the boat that was not there when he sold the boat to Scott. So the police took some of the residue, and Bruce is like, that looks like cement residue. Like, it looks like a homemade anchor cement residue. And so the police sent it out for testing, but the test came back inconclusive, and the results were never revealed. They also found a pair of pliers in the boat with two strands of hair. So they sent it out for mitochondrial DNA test, and they found it proven to be Lacey's. But mitochondrial DNA at the time was new and unreliable, and so it wasn't super strong. In regards to evidence. Why else would she be on the boat? I know, and she didn't even know the boat existed, according to all of her family and friends. The next notable event in the public's eye is the New Year's Eve vigil. So he did himself real dirty here. Behind the scenes, the police are starting to learn about Scott's sexy masseuse and are keeping it close to the vest. Amber called the police and told them on the 30th of December about her affair with him. And because Sean had called her, And she starts going undercover. 
So New Year's Eve, 2003, Dick Clark is rocking New Year's Eve in New York with Ryan Seacrest Mm. in Times Square. There's a war going on in Iraq that's completely unfolding, and we're probably, like, trading photos on Friendster. Probably, yeah. You were graduating high school? I was in my final semester of high school, getting ready to join me in Boston. year of college, yeah. Yep. This night in California, they hold a New Year's Eve candle vigil for Lacey. Jackie Peterson spoke. Sharon spoke. She commented on how Lacey would be so happy to see all of her friends and supporters. Scott was there, but he stayed out of the range of cameras and did not speak in his baseball cap. As people started to set their candles down by the shrine, a photographer captured Scott smiling with his nieces, and there was live footage found of him laughing with his neighbors, and it was all over every news source the next day. He wasn't crying. He wasn't desperate to find his missing wife. It was apparent that he had something to hide. The vigil started at 4.30, and so right before the vigil started, guess what he was doing? Talking to Amber. Guess what he was saying? That he was in Paris. Yeah, girl. He was like, oh, my God, the Eiffel Tower is so beautiful. That's what I remember. He did it at the right time, too. He did it at the time difference. That would make sense. That's insane. He had the bandwidth to do that while they're holding a candlelit vigil. What he didn't know, though, was that she was recording the conversation. She was already undercover. She was getting hour one of 29 hours that she was about to record with him. So as the reward increases to half a million dollars from 15K, the MPD announced that it was indeed foul play that was the result of Lacey's disappearance, but that they didn't have any suspects and that there would be no more announcements. They wouldn't do any more press conferences. On January 9th, they held a news conference saying that it would be their last and that they didn't have any significant leads. With no leads, no news, potentially no further press conferences, rumors started circulating about a satanic cult. And the police investigate into it further. According to ABC News, a pregnant woman by the name of Evelyn Hernandez went missing May 1st, 2002, and the case was still unresolved. I couldn't find anything online after a couple searches because I read something about that date being relevant to Satan worshipers. So I searched a little bit and then I was like, I'm just going to let this stay away from me. So I'm going to take ABC News' story about it word for word, but this accompanied by a Modesto furniture store owner named Bill Austin, who said that he had a cult operating out of his building, and it rang a few alarm bells for the cops. This scared a lot of folks in town, but eventually resulted in nothing. So for the first half of January, authorities are clearly zeroing in on Scott, watching his every move, his demeanor when he would walk the dog, his visits to the marina, which there were quite a few of, weirdly. They tracked his car and they saw that he was going to the marina and just looking out at it. What? On January 6th, they would also listen in on Scott telling Amber about Lacey. Scott's alibi of him going fishing in the bay. So he eventually told her, yes, I was married. Yes, my wife was murdered. It wasn't me. Yep. He essentially calls her and says, listen, I lied to you. I was married and my wife has since gone missing. So I don't think it's a good time for us to like talk and see each other and I do really want to be with you and I just need to like figure out and find her and she's like uh Scott what it's wild during this time he continues to do a bunch of sketchy things that don't help his look on January 13th he terminates his warehouse lease he also does this weird thing where this guy Ed Steele who worked for the MPD he was a former sergeant he was assigned as Scott's bodyguard and confidant and personal liaison And Ed Steele is in the documentary that I watched on A&E, and he mentioned that local restaurants would donate food to the volunteer center. 
the volunteer center was like working around the clock to try to help Lacey. And so this really nice like steak and rib company came and donated a bunch of food one night. And Scott like held up a meaty piece of rib across the room and was like, hey, Ed, look at this piece of meat and was like shaking it in the volunteer center. And Ed said it was the weirdest thing. That's what he remembers most vividly out of the whole thing that he was I don't understand how he's transfixed on this piece of rib when his wife's missing. It's just like little character things like that, that people were like, this is so weird. Also around this time, the National Enquirer, which I know is not the most credible news source, (laughs) but they released the first photos of Scott and Amber together that someone sent over. What a disaster. also accompany this with information about the life insurance policy Blood evidence, which apparently there was like a speck of Scott's blood on his truck that he like warned the cops about because he was like, you know, I'm a handsy man. There's probably Mm -hmm. some blood on my truck and information about the concrete anchors that are apparently missing and he only has one of. Life insurance policy, I think it was just that accompanied with everything else. They like put it in the National Enquirer article, but they... It, they had done it at a reasonable time. They had done it, I think, so there's after nothing, sh- like, outstanding or crazy about this. They had both gotten insurance policies in June of that year, I think. Okay. I need to double-check that, but I think it's in June of 2002 when mm-hmm. she was getting pregnant and stuff. So with all this shit hitting the fan, Scott hired an attorney. Of course. And he recommended to hire a PI named Gary Ermonian, who started interviewing all of the witnesses that the cops were seeming to ignore who had seen Lacey the morning of the 24th. So he interviewed all the neighbors. He interviewed Uri Feria. And he got as much information about all of these eyewitnesses to his defense attorney so that they could start building a case. So you know when we were in like elementary school, we would, did you ever build that paper mache volcano? Yes. Lacey being missing and like Scott being weird and shady and creepy is like we're building the volcano but then like amber fry becoming known to the public was the vinegar and soda that you poured in and Uh it just exploded it was crazy so we have no potential suspects there's no hard evidence there's no body scott's enabled to express any sort of emotion it was literally the perfect recipe for the amber fry soda that we're about to mix into the baking soda to like have the huge explosion. To me, it seems like she was also the perfect band-aid for the wounds that everyone's experiencing for this outstanding mysterious case that was just consuming people. It shifted the focus from actual facts, which are what you're supposed to be paying attention to emotion and to everyone immediately feeling that Scott was the most guilty motherfucker ever. So we're at January 24th. Nancy Grace is on Larry King Live. She is not like Scott Peterson. She does this amazing analogy. And she's like, sometimes it just takes common sense to know that someone is guilty. When you go to work in the morning and it's sunny and you go into the office and you come out and there's gray clouds and there's rain and there's people with their umbrellas. You don't need to look anywhere to know that it was raining. (laughs) The prosecutor's podcast said that with circumstantial evidence, you're essentially taking brick by brick and building a case. And it's still evidence, even though it's circumstantial. And a lot of people just think circumstantial. Well, it's not real, but it is. International news is interrupted by the press conference that starts in Modesto with Ridenauer, who is one of the MPD. He says that it's going to be their last press conference and he brings out Amber. Amber walks to the center of the podium and she's shaking as she's about to read her piece of paper. She was terrified. She said she was having like a full panic attack before she went out. She 
told everyone about her relationship with Scott Peterson. She is extremely apologetic for all of the pain that this has caused. She is sad for Lacey. After she speaks, the Roshas instantly turn on Scott. I mean, it is lightning. So Brent gets on first and says that Scott has failed to answer too many questions and he may be hiding more and that they can no longer support him. And he begs Scott to cooperate fully with the police. In one way, I'm like, oh my gosh, he's been hiding his affair this whole time. And in the other way, I'm like, what else is he hiding? Obviously, the media, when this happened, it was like sharks. It's a disaster. They were so intense and they were also helpful. But it's like when the affair comes out, it gets so twisted. Scott Peterson was on the cover of every magazine. Well, this is problematic all around because what's happening now is that it is almost impossible for him to have a fair trial. Exactly. Which means that his defense attorneys have a huge case about how he can't have a fair trial. Yep. Which sucks for the state because they can't control this either. And now they know that they're basically given an alley-oop to the freaking defense because really there was no fair trial. No, there was never going to be a fair trial after this. He's on the cover of every magazine article. He's a fertilizer salesman from Modesto. He becomes the butt of jokes on like late night television. It's wild. Scott tried to clean up his side of the streets with some strange PR interviews in the coming weeks. He goes on Diane Sawyer. He talks to Gloria Gomez, who was a local Modesto reporter. And he talks to Connie Chung. And once again, he doesn't do himself any favors. And he refers to Lacey in the past tense. So to the public, Scott seemingly overnight went from helpful husband at the volunteer center to strangely grieving husband to a little suspicious, to completely guilty. He also (laughs) talks to selling agents about selling his home, which is crazy. I didn't find anything on actual public listing realtor websites, but there are multiple people who said that they had talked about buying a bigger home once Connor was born, and he continued to, like, look into that. When Connor's due date comes and goes. Oh, God. What did he do? What he did he do? He had already converted Connor's baby room into a storage unit where he was storing a mattress and a bunch of boxes, and it was very clear to him in the public's eye that Connor and Lacey were not returning. And his confidence in that caused a lot of questions. This is not normal behavior. And that's the perfect segue to how the Rocha family has to be feeling in all of these months. I can't even imagine how they feel when in mid-April, a couple walking their dog found a decomposing body of a full-term baby in a marshy area in the San Francisco Bay. There were a lot of contradicting reports that came out as to whether there was an umbilical cord or not, whether it was cut or torn. It would also be debated whether his body was badly decomposed or not. One day later, on April 14th, the body of a recently pregnant woman was found lying on a rocky shore of the San Francisco Bay. Her remains were just a torso, no head, no lower arms, no legs. The body had been badly decayed due to being in the water for so long. And autopsies of the bodies were done by forensic pathologists. One of the pathologists was named Dr. Brian Peterson. So there was a huge storm a couple of days before the 13th that everyone thinks is the reason that the bodies washed up to shore finally. In summary, one of the largest things to take away from the autopsy is that Connor's body was better preserved than Lacey's. This is the one thing I recall because it felt so horrifying in detail was that at some point... The fetus gets expelled. Yes, exactly. It's called a coffin birth. Yes. Yeah. People took this information that his body was less decomposed than Lacey's body. That he had lived longer In different ways, yes. Yes. Certain people thought that maybe he was born and then drowned later. Other people 
thought what you just said where he was maybe protected by the uterus and expelled after. That that was my understanding. Yeah. There was also some strange nylon tape that was found around the fetus's neck, but it was loose. It wasn't like super tight. And he did have forms of mutilation. Oh, but was it like fish or something? Yeah. They mostly think it was fish. Her cervix was intact. But her upper torso had been completely emptied of internal organs, which would make sense as to why the baby came out. Yeah. Yeah, It it, expelled it. Yeah. Horrible. Meconium was reported to be found in his bowels, which would make sense too if he wasn't properly born. And they concluded that Lacey never gave birth. He came out of the body after decomposition and died due to lack of oxygen since the mother had passed, which is, like I said, called a coffin birth. Prosecution claimed that the baby and the mother washed up due to tidal action. But there was some contradicting evidence from forensic pathologists that said that bodies that have been in waters for years don't have the same type of fish and animal decay that they were seeing. At the end of the day, the bodies appeared in the bay where Scott went on his spontaneous fishing trip that he had pre-purchased tickets for on Christmas Eve, the day that Lacey went missing. As I mentioned, Burkini and Bueller had put a tracker on Scott's car and they had been seeing him go back to the marina, which I know you and I have talked about in multiple cases where a lot of offenders return to scene of the crime. Well, also, he'd be potentially looking to see if she was washing up so he could do something with yes, it. Yes, yes. The tracker's still in the car and they were watching him after the bodies came to shore because obviously this is the first piece of hard evidence that they have. They have the bodies. So he is in San Diego, chilling. He was debating whether to go golfing with his brother and father, and he started to see that someone was trailing him, and he was like, oh, man, I think there's some paparazzi trailing me. I don't know if it's a good idea for me to go golfing with you when they just found Lacey and Connor. So he was like, I probably shouldn't, and I think, yeah, maybe maybe that's not a good fucking idea. Yeah. So he gets pulled over and he thinks it's some paparazzis, but it's actually cops. And he is arrested on April 18th, 2003. His parents, who live in San Diego, who he was visiting, as we know, live close to the Mexican border. He was heading to La Jolla Country Club, which is a mere 31.6 miles away from the border. Mm -hmm. In addition to this, Scott is now blonde. This was a weird moment. Claiming it's just from the sun, and he also dyed his goatee blonde. Oh, he just did too much sun in? He has $15,000 in cash, survival gear, camping equipment, changes of clothes, four cell phones, and two driver's licenses. Totally a normal number of cell phones and driver's licenses. April 21st, Scott is arraigned in Stanislaus County Superior Court before Judge Nancy Ashley, and she charges him with two felony counts of murder with premeditation and special circumstances. He pleaded not guilty. So what are the three things that you look at in criminal investigation? Motive. Yep. Means. Yep. Opportunity. Absolutely. Motive. Amber wants to pursue more of a relationship with Scott. They want to start their cute little family. And Connor is a problem. Means. He purchases his boat on December 8th and he picks it up that Monday. And that's two weeks before Lacey goes missing. Opportunity. He has, like we talked about, a little bit less than 24 hours from when they left the hair salon to when he called Sharon to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. His defense lawyer, who I think is like very charming and very talented, Mark Garagos, he calls in the opening statement, he like literally talks about how he's a cad. He's like, my client's a cad, but he's not a murderer. There's reports of psychologists talking about Scott Peterson, especially in regards to like his lack of emotion who talk about whether he's a sociopath or a psychopath. 
And if that's what he is, then it makes sense that he would think that that's the best solution. Yes. Eliminating the problem. Yeah. You just, that's gone. He doesn't want to have to pay for a kid. He doesn't want to have to deal with his wife. April, find the bodies. May, Lacey's birthday. May 4th, 2003 would have been her 28th birthday and they had a memorial for Lacey. 3,000 people came to say goodbye to her. The Petersons and Amber were not in attendance and Scott was actually being held in Stanislaus without bail. Some reported that he never applied for a pass, so the Petersons went to the jail to spend time with him during it to talk about Amber. But what we do know is that at the memorial, they removed Scott from all of the photos. Brent Rocha, Lacey's brother, was the only family member to speak, and he said, Today is a good day. Today is Lacey's birthday. All of us are given an opportunity to remember Lacey and Connor. Lacey would have been very grateful and just astounded that she would have gotten this kind of attention. I think that with all of us here, we're sending a very powerful message. He reminisced about how three years ago at their grandmother's funeral, Lacey told him that she didn't want people to be sad at her funeral. She wanted people to be happy and celebrate her. When I die, I don't want people to be missing me. He recalled her saying, I want people to be happy. So this was the beginning of a really nasty feud that started happening between the Petersons and the Rochas. It trickled down from the memorial into personal things in the house, like the Rochas wanting to take certain objects from the home that were Lacey's I really just don't know how the Petersons are going to fight with them about anything. Yeah, it was bad. And then also the cops obviously were recording a bunch of phone calls with him and Amber. And so they start recording some confidential phone calls between Scott and his like legal defense and PI accidentally. Oh. Yeah. Oh, so that's not good legally. Mm -mm. Uh Uh-uh. So the trial. It's June 1st, 2004. (sighs) Trial lasted five months and jury selection was proving difficult from the start. Yes, because everybody knew about this. Yeah, and they would only have more issues facing them in the coming months. Lee Peterson hired Mark Garagos for a million dollars to defend Scott. And they went from trying to find people for the jury who would consider Scott innocent and they didn't find any luck with that. So they just were looking for people who would have it in their heart and the ability to give Scott just a fair trial. And they said even that was difficult to find. They had moved the trial from Stanislaus to San Mateo County, but it was only like two hours away. So It's, it's like, not. Yeah. It's, um... And this was a national and also two hours away still feels local. It, it is. Jury selection for a case with this much publicity has to always be overwhelming. One of the jurors in the documentary said that he opened his jury duty letter and read it to his wife. And she was like, oh my goodness, I bet you're going to be covering that missing pregnant lady case. And sure enough, you know what a self juror is? No. So a self juror is someone that has a pre-existing motive to come <laughs> into the yeah, trial. Like, I don't trust her if she wants to change her Christmas yeah, plans. It's someone who gives all the right answers to like the questions that they ask. Are you against police authority? And you say, no. Do you have a problem if this is a case that has to do with an abused pregnant woman? And you say, no, I could fairly testify for that. <laughs> yeah. So right off the bat, they're releasing people who they think are self-jurors right away. Because obviously it's so hard with a case that has this much public obsession. And they ended up selecting a jury, but this trial ended up becoming like a live soap opera. People tuned in from all over the U.S. every day. There were no cameras allowed in the courtroom. So every day after the trial happened, they would come out and they would essentially report on what happened. So they would go and sit in, take their notes, and then come out and do live reporting from the courthouse stairs. Prosecutors were using circumstantial and emotional evidence, and that's what they were using to appeal to the jury that was selected. His motive was that he didn't want to be a father. He didn't want to be tied down with a wife and child. 
And instead of divorce, he chose murder. DeSasio, who was the prosecutor, built a story of just months and months of lies. And Garagos, Scott's defense attorney, claimed that his client was a cad, but he was stone-cold innocent and pushed for something that has to do with the burglary across the street as the people who abducted and killed Lacey. In the opening statement, Garagos actually played the video of the Martha Stewart show that Scott used in his timeline Mm -hmm. to prove that Scott was watching that with Lacey because he's like, what guy would watch Martha Stewart on Christmas Eve morning if his wife wasn't there? Garagos was convincing and there was no forensic evidence for the prosecution. Well, because people said because his alibi was announced by the police shortly after the case went public, the defense said, well, the burglars could have abducted Lacey and Connor and they could have kept her captive for however long. And then once the police came public with what Scott's alibi was, they dropped her in the bay. Oh, my God. Even though there's cops surveying the bay all the time in their house yeah however the prosecution didn't know how the crime was committed or where the crime was committed or when the crime was committed and all they knew that it was potentially the night prior and Mm -hmm. so it was like that felt weak too garagos he's like they don't have anything i mean he's not wrong i know it's wild so the prosecution really had nothing to incriminate scott in the courtroom that was like actual hard evidence and they were going as far to like possibly make things up. So I'm just going to talk about a few things that were important in the courtroom. The yeah. cement mix. You got a 90-pound bag and you made one anchor. And the anchor ties that were on the anchor weren't even deep enough to actually work. So you know how you throw an anchor over mm-hmm. and you have to have enough give? The anchor rope length that was on the one anchor they found wasn't long enough to work in the area that he was fishing in. So where are the other anchors that you may have built? And what would that short rope do? Mm-hmm. And he came back and his defense attorney said that there was cement in his yard, but that cement, they brought in a cement expert, and that cement was consistent with the cement that he used on a fence that he built, not the cement that was used in the anchors. Burkini was working with the prosecution and the DA to find any evidence that they could, and it was just not good because they were potentially falsifying police reports and trying <sighs> to get information that would incriminate Scott because there was really nothing to incriminate him. Even the phone calls that he had with Amber, the 29 hours, there was nothing that he said that incriminated him for killing her, for having an affair and being a douchebag. Yeah, but not for killing her. (sighs) So in this trial, they're all going through the trial. They're working through everything. And the jury members were feeling really awkward because they had to go in the same doors as the Peterson family, the Rocha family, all of the eyewitnesses, all of the cops, all of the lawyers. And one of the jurors said, hey, are we allowed to say anything to anyone when we go in? Because Mm. it's kind of awkward. We're like on the jury and we're walking by the Rocha family. And they were like, you can exchange pleasantries. And so this one juror, Justin Falconer, walks in and he just happens to walk next to Brent on June 23rd, 2004. And he had made a joke with Brent. He was like, sorry, I'm going to be blocking your camera view today. There were camera crews all outside just filming them every day. And Brent was like, oh, it's okay. Super casual, normal pleasantries that he was joking about. Instantly, this got reported to the judge that one of the jury members were talking to her family. (sighs) And he was one of the only people who were in the not sure which way I would convict right now when everyone else was like very guilty. And so there were rumors that he got kicked off the jury 
because his views were differing. He ended up after that going on a bunch of news shows and reviewing his experience on the case, and he divulged that the prosecution really hadn't given any reason for him to feel that Scott was guilty. So they end up subbing in another jury member, and Scott is having a really hard time in the courtroom because he's, you know, he's just a stoic boy. There's a conversation that he has with his mom when Scott is behind bars. It's during the trial, and he talks about how the public is constantly reacting to his lack of emotions. And it's true. He, whether he has a receipt or he doesn't, whether he smiles or he doesn't, whether he's sad or he isn't, he always is wrong in this. And he is talking to her about it and how he feels like he can't do anything right. And she says, well, you come from a long line of Stoics. And when I heard that, I was just like, yeah, he does. But he also was very emotional when he was courting Lacey or when he was courting Amber. Or Lauren. Or when he was courting Lauren. Or when he was convincing Amber that he wants to like be a stepdad to his daughter. He has to use emotion at certain times and he has to use it when he wants to be manipulative. Mm -hmm. But it's weird to me that he can't use it when he's in the court and he needs to be manipulating the jury to know that he's sad. It's about not showing weakness. Okay. I would give it that however he was raised or however he is, that any sort of weakness, it's And his dad's like watching him in court. Exactly. Yeah. He can't show that. Yeah. So obviously since this was all circumstantial evidence, there was no big like aha moment and no hard evidence that helped the jury in either direction. What about her hair on the boat? There were still reports that Lacey had been to the storage unit since he bought the boat. One of the women that worked at the storage unit had said that she saw Lacey either on the 23rd or 24th, she didn't even remember, at the storage unit and that she could have seen the boat that day. And Scott claimed that she did know that he had the boat. So the case was essentially boring because there was like no real evidence and no like, aha, the glove fits until Amber. Oh, God. Okay. So she was what you call a character witness and everyone was really anticipating her testimony to turn it all around. She hired a lawyer, which I think was really good, named Gloria Allred, who is a feminist lawyer. Yes, she represents all the girlies yes. in their situation. Yes, She hired Gloria Allred, and she essentially helped Amber and helped her find the right voice and helped the public try to see the truth about her. Obviously, there was a lot of backlash about Amber, and there was a lot of backlash about her hiring Gloria, which I think is kind of fucked up because she was a victim and a witness, and yes. you're entitled to a lawyer if you're either of those things. And she was... Trying to help the authorities. Yes. So Amber walked into the court to testify, and it had been two years since she had seen Scott in person. The defense was worried about the testimony, and they just had to sit and listen to them playing all of the tapes in the courtroom. They played the phone call of Scott calling Amber during the vigil. It definitely turned the knife. Journalists reported that it was pure insanity, how quickly, like, all the people even reporting were like, oh, my God, this guy, there's no way he's not guilty. They had no evidence. The defense was building a good case, and then they bring her in, and it was like, ba-boom. So people believed Amber. Oh, They liked her. They believed her. They didn't like her, but they believed her. Because it's recorded. Yes. He is supposed to be at his missing wife and son's vigil, and he's calling her in the exact time that it would be the time difference of New Year's Eve from Paris to California to talk about the fireworks at the Eiffel Tower. Oh, my God. So Nancy Grace referred to the Amber tapes like a fine wine. (laughs) There's no timeline. It just keeps getting better and better every time you listen to it. It seems that everyone started thinking Scott was guilty, and it wasn't really about the affair. It was just about what else he could be lying about. Even his family felt betrayed. 
he was on trial for double murder, not the affair, but he was being accused for the murder because of the affair. So we go back to the prosecution is theorizing that he smothered her, wrapped her in a tarp, put her in the back of the truck, very Chris Watts too, and then put her on a boat and then tied anchors and then threw her in the water. They start bringing in more expert witnesses to testify, and the prosecution brings someone in who says that you can pull a 150-pound fish into a boat the same size as the aluminum boat that Scott bought. It's like a Class A boat, but that the defense was like, you can't do that without it capsizing. There's no way that he could have gotten a body onto that boat and gotten it off the boat without the boat capsizing. So the defense actually like films someone with a 150-pound fake body on the boat trying to knock it over and the boat keeps capsizing and the judge wouldn't admit it into court. And then the defense brought on an expert, Dr. March, who talked about the baby and talked about Connor and said that his date of death due to his gestational age and when he was found would have been December 29th, which would have meant that Scott isn't responsible for his death because he died after Lacey died. No one even needed to argue with it because during cross-examination, he couldn't defend his credentials or experience when he was confronted with an error and he yelled, cut me some slack. Are you kidding me? And the whole courtroom was like shocked and the jury completely dismissed everything that he had just said. So the eyewitnesses also came forward to help the defense and they were discredited during the trial. All the people that thought that they saw Lacey, all the people who thought that they saw her in the park, seen her in the white top and the black yes. pants, which Scott also said was what she was wearing and was also on the posters that were spread all over town, wasn't consistent with what she was found in. She was found in tan pants. So it kind of discredits everything that all of these eyewitnesses are saying out the gate anyway. It's or also like holiday yeah. time and like everyone wants to try to come forward and give their two cents, but eyewitnesses are notoriously like not reliable anyway, unless yeah. they're like actually seeing the crime. There was also another expert fisherman who was called to the stand to talk about Scott and his conflicting comments that he was fishing versus golfing. So Scott had told a lot of people, including neighbors and family members of the Rochas, that he was golfing that day and he told other people that he was fishing. So even what he was telling family and friends were inconsistent. But then when he, when the expert witness actually came and looked at Scott's boat and his fishing gear, apparently he had all freshwater bait and tackle and his equipment was not set up for saltwater fishing. You guys can't see me, but I'm narrowing my eyes. She is. So there were a million other places that were better to fish than the San Francisco Bay that day if he wanted to do freshwater fishing, which is and what he was set up for. The- so November 2nd, 2004, Rick DeSasso prosecution closed with a lot of emotion. Scott hated his life. He hated his wife. He didn't want to feel trapped with a baby. And so he got rid of that lifestyle. They held up side-by-side photos of Lacey and Scott and Amber on Christmas at the Christmas parties. Defense's closing statements were very flat. It was a bad day, and Garagos didn't do anything to help the jury feel like Scott was innocent. Garagos honestly had felt like there was no hard evidence, and he had already placed Lacey alive on the 24th and a burglary across the street and witnesses who said that they had seen her, so he really wasn't worried about it. Everyone feared that there was going to be a hung jury, including Nancy Grace. Literally, everyone was worried about it because it was there was really just no hard evidence. So the jurors had spent six months listening to this trial, and I mean, they're not wrong. It's emotional. It is, yeah. And during deliberation, the first draw for the jury was ten to two. They're at ten to two, and then all of a sudden, one of the other jurors says that she had gone home and searched something on the internet because they weren't sequestered. So she was kicked off by the judge. So they sub in. The infamous strawberry shortcake. Oh, gosh. There we go. 
Rochelle Nice. And she comes in very passionate and very determined about the case. And she says, let's go. He's guilty. Let's do this. Let's get this over with. And the other jury members are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We've been going through like all of these notes that we have. And the foreman, Gregory Jackson, who was very educated, he was a doctor and a lawyer. He had like stacks and stacks and stacks of notes. And they're like, we're going to go through all of this again. We're going to put it all up on the whiteboard and we're going like, to see what we need to do. Apparently, Gregory Jackson was the only outstanding pro-innocence and everyone else was on the guilty side. Yes. he was an attorney and he knew that there wasn't actually enough evidence to prove this person. Yes. And so what if the other jurors threatened him physically? No, because it's emotional. So Gregory Jackson went to the judge, scared of the atmosphere, and he requested to be dismissed. They summoned another juror. The 12 jurors reached a verdict. So are these all the reasons why the LA Innocence Project has taken this up? There's some of them, yeah. Okay. On November 12, 2004, the group of 12 reached a verdict in nine hours. Mark and some of Scott's family had actually left because they were doing the verdict on a Friday and they were like, there's no way they're going to figure it out until Monday. So Mark Garagos went back to LA and some of Scott's family went back to San Diego and they were like driving home when they heard that the jury had reached a verdict. Not a good thing for them. Nope. The jury found Scott Peterson guilty of both murder charges. And Scott, like, honestly thought he was not going to be guilty. He thought he was going to hug their family again. He said that he felt like he was falling forward through the floor forever and his vision was blurry. He was hearing static. The saddest thing to me is that Lee had an interview on the AE show and he said that he wasn't surprised and he didn't think that Scott had a chance. He said that he felt due to the media and the prosecution, he thought that he hasn't got a prayer. So there was a full mob outside the courtroom. Everyone was ecstatic. It looked like mania and the Peterson family were numb. They didn't get any time to see him. Jackie, Peterson, and Janie, who is Scott's sister-in-law, had to walk out of the courtroom through a mob of people heckling them and cheering them. Ugh. And they were clapping for Scott's verdict. So there's a little bit more tea of the jury, because why not? But juror number eight had apparently been chatty caffeing it up at a bar saying that between the verdict and the sentencing that they were going to burn Scott Peterson and that he was talking about a potential book deal. What? So this got around to one of the legal advisors and they had told the judge and the judge had the bartender come in and testify because the bartender was the one that had been talking about it. But the bartender ended up pleading the fifth. So the juror remained on. It delayed like the whole sentencing. So sentencing happens. Sharon Rocha had a very emotional speech for the jury where she talks about how she misses having a daughter and that she'll never get to see Connor's photo with Santa and that she is sick every day. And she does this whole point of view speech from Lacey's point of view talking about when Scott's killing her. And it's like, I know the jury had already decided, but the jury members were all crying. The whole courtroom was crying. Brent also talks and says that he had purchased a gun to kill Scott. And but he said that he wanted to wait and he didn't kill him for a reason so he could sweat it out. So they recommended that he be sentenced to death mm -hmm. on December 13th. And after the trial was over, the jurors were immediate celebrities. The new jury foreman who was elected after Gregory was gone was on Larry King Live. And it was actually really difficult watching the interview because Larry asks him basic questions and he like can't answer them. Mm, which is weird because he should have been present. I mean, he was a the foreman, right? yes. He was the elected foreman after Gregory Jackson was That's dismissed. very strange. It was hard to watch because it's like, oh, God. 
So all in all, obviously, there's so much circumstantial and emotional evidence pointing to all signs that Scott murdered his wife and he looks and acts guilty. And the media did an amazing job of assisting this. But the big question is like, could he really have predicted that his wife was going to go missing to Amber? He told her that he lost his wife and then he lost his wife. That can't be a coincidence. Did he really buy a boat that no one knew about and just coincidentally spontaneously go fishing when he was supposed to go golfing on a day that he got a ticket and then left her at home alone when she was eight months pregnant and not feeling well? Scott had two legal wins in 2020. The first was in August when his death penalty was overturned by the California Supreme Court. The reason it was overturned was because of jury selection errors by the trial judge. A second win was in October when California Supreme Court ruled that a lower court should take a second look at the case to determine whether his guilty verdict should be overturned. Then in 2021, his death sentence was officially vacated and he was resentenced to life in prison. However, the following year, a San Mateo County Superior Court judge denied his bid for a new trial. Now, in 2022, defense attorneys to Scott appealed his conviction again, claiming that one of the jurors, Rochelle Nice, who came in guns blazing, as we know, with her fiery red hair, lied during jury selection. And when asked if she ever had been a victim of a crime, she said no. Yes. In 2022, she admitted that she neglected to disclose that she had obtained a restraining order in 2001 against her then-boyfriend's ex-girlfriend who had been stalking and threatening her. She also said that she had gotten into a fight with her ex-boyfriend that resulted in her arrest. Not sure how they didn't cross-check this. There was also some other crazy details about people on the jury not being, like, being seen in online chat rooms about how they were going to burn Scott in the trial if they got onto the jury. In December 2022, Judge Anne-Christine Masulo denied Scott's request for a new trial and said that Nice's responses were not motivated by pre-existing or improper bias against the petitioner, but instead they were the result of a combination of good faith misunderstanding of the questions and sloppiness in answering. The defense alleges that Nice's motive was to profit off of the case and that she was a stealth juror. And since the trial, she has written Scott 17 letters in jail. And she wrote a book with the other jurors and appeared on Dr. Oz. Here we are, January 18th, 2024, and the Los Angeles Innocence Project, the nonprofit organization known for their work to exonerate wrongly convicted and incarcerated individuals that is based in L.A. and different from the Innocence Project nationwide. I think a lot of you guys have made that distinction. Yes, they filed motions seeking DNA testing and post-conviction discovery on behalf of its client, Scott Peterson. Why is the LA Innocence Project bringing this on? Yes, that's what everyone wants to know. They told People Magazine in a January 19th article that new evidence supports his innocence. They stated that new evidence now supports Mr. Peterson's long-standing claim of innocence and raises many questions into who abducted and killed Lacey and Connor. Attorneys for the LA Innocence Project are quoting updated witness statements, which point to multiple areas of interest, including information about the burglary across the street. Witnesses are saying that Lacey was killed after witnessing men breaking into the neighbor's house during a dog walk while Scott was on his solo fishing trip the morning of Christmas Eve. They are also hoping to conduct new DNA testing on a blood-stained mattress found on the 25th in a burnt-out orange van discovered nearby. That's fine. Do that DNA testing. Gary Ghost believes that he has a good chance of getting out of prison. He hopes the LA Innocence Project is successful, stating you can't have faith in the system and think that he should remain behind bars. Garagos explained that over the past 20 years, members of the public approach him and ask about the case, and he goes on to debunk their outstanding myths about Scott. 
clarifying that Scott never told Amber he loved her, that he was excited about being a father, and that all of the circumstantial evidence was disproved in court and that there is really nothing incriminating Scott. While one of the biological Peterson sisters, Anne Bird, wrote a book called Blood Brother and lists 33 reasons why her brother Scott Peterson is guilty, she and Scott share a mom, but Anne is a recent addition to the Peterson family as she only reconnected with Jackie and Scott in 1997. But here's a couple of the 33 reasons, just for fun. <laughs> Number eight, flirting with our babysitter. He made flirtinis and the babysitter felt uncomfortable and left. Is she underage too? Yes. On top of that, Gross. number nine, Jackie and Lee told Anne that if the cops asked about the babysitter incident, she should just deny it or not recall it, suggesting to me that they didn't want anyone opening that can of worms. However, on the opposing side, Janie Peterson, Scott's sister-in-law, is still standing by his side fighting for his innocence. Some people have questions, Andy. Yes. Janie, who is now an attorney and whose social media platform profiles state, advocating for the wrongful conviction of my brother-in-law, Scott Peterson. Let us do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly. She truly feels that the burglary case proves his innocence. In a 2023 interview with People, Janie said that an evidence claim was filed in April that features startling document, a signed exhibit from a person claiming to have heard a man confess to being part of a burglary that took place that day. According to this person who signed the exhibit, one of the burglars said that the other burglar killed Lacey. The confessed burglar said that Lacey confronted them after having caught them wheeling out a safe. They then dumped her body in the bay after seeing the news that Scott had been fishing there all day. This completely matches up with the theory Janie always believed. I'd like to close this out with the prosecutor's podcast and a strong statement that they said saying that even if Scott is granted a new trial, he will be convicted again. Mm -hmm. The circumstantial evidence is still evidence and it's strong. They also stated that eyewitness accounts are notoriously unreliable and that they are the first thing innocence advocates attack when attempting to overturn a conviction that is actually faulty. To rely on them here for his innocence would be questionable at best. I have a, um, someone reported to CNN fact. Ooh, okay, let's do it. Just a little epilogue. In 1995, Scott told Miguel Espedia, a friend of his, how he would dispose of a body. No. Burkini testified that Espedia called the police tip line on April 19, 2003, the day Scott was arrested. He said he had known Scott and Lacey Peterson since 1995. He went to college with Scott at San Luis Obispo. He knew them after Lacey and Scott Peterson got married. He played racquetball with them two or three times a week. He called and said that he had a conversation with Scott Peterson in 1995 where Peterson told him how he would get rid of a body if he killed someone. He said he would tie a bag around the neck with duct tape and put weights on the hands and throw it into the sea. Fish activity would eat away at the neck and hands and the body would float up. No fingers, no teeth, so there would be no identification. Police found Espidia's story unbelievable and prosecutors have not called him in as a witness. I would like to also say at this juncture about not having an affair. Also, maybe don't in fun conversation talk about how you get rid of a body. Don't do it. Don't do it. And maybe just don't think it. So in conclusion. Wowza. <laughs> Wowza. In conclusion, Andy kicked the slats out of this case. I didn't want to take it on. And you did it so bravely and you did it so beautifully. And thank you so much for doing it. Thank you for being an inspiration. <laughs> and also, guys, don't have affairs. And also, maybe don't talk about how you kill or get rid of a body don't have affairs period and just get a divorce just 
get a divorce. This was the first one of its kind. Sharon even said it. She's like, why couldn't he just divorce her? Always, as always, just get a divorce. But Andy, you know, you have to do the the honors. I do. Yep. And always trust your gut when it comes to conviction or love. (laughs) So no one ends up murdered. Oh, I love you. And I love you guys. Bye. Bye. 